You're listening to audio from Praxis Church Kelowna. Praxis is a new church plant that exists to follow Jesus and make him known. If you're interested in finding out more or joining us in person, go to praxischurch.ca. Matthew 5, 1-12 Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor, pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Morning. Good to have you all here. Um, my name is Josh. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'm the pastor here on behalf of the staff and leadership of Praxis. First-time guests and visitors, big warm welcome to you. Uh, while you get your seats, let me open us in a word of prayer. Well, Father, we thank you. you. You are great. Your faithfulness towards us is great. Towards your own character and holiness, it's great. You're worthy of all glory and honor and praise. We, we just pause and, and, and thank you right now, and um, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and illuminate the words of Christ in the word, make them come alive in our heart, do that task that only you can do, that I am completely incapable of doing. Jesus, we pray you would be made much of, and that as your followers and your disciples, we would be challenged, built up, corrected if needed. Um, but that we would leave here with a bigger picture of you because of the revelation of you through scripture. So we pray now in the great name of Jesus to you, Father God, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. All right. Well, um, lots of new faces every week here. I'm so encouraged by that. That means a lot of you don't know me. Yeah, as I said, my name is Josh. My wife comes to the first gathering. We have four little girls, and um, we homeschool. We homeschool. I'm saying this because um, I, it, it's fun right now. I come up from my office, I come upstairs, and my kids are usually homeschooling in the dining room, and they love to tell me about what, what they're learning. And it's, it's always something fun, it's, it's cool seeing the world through kids' eyes. Right now they're um, kind of learning the foundational rules around grammar, consonant, vowel teams, how to conjugate verbs, verb tenses, all of this. And they love to pop, give me pop quizzes. So I come up and they're like, hey, dad, we want to quiz you. And um, I fail them like every day. It, it's sad, like for somebody who speaks for a living, I, I, I've forgotten a lot about the English language. So I fail these things and then my kids like to harass me about it. And you know, how could you not know that? English is your first language. Uh, to which my wife reminds them, hey, his family's from Northern Alberta and he worked with Newfies for six years, so have some grace. And, I mean, you laugh, but I challenge you to one of them. It's, it's humbling. And I bring this up because I think many of us, we forget the foundations. I'm not alone in this. 
Um, some of these, these things that maybe informed our understanding at one point, maybe deep back in the recesses of your mind are there, but it's easy to kind of just begin to wing it, like, like Newfoundlanders in the English language. Like, they're not neat knickers. Um, kind of just took a, hung a left at some point and kept going. Many of our faith is lived out in this way, though, is that we might have begun with some foundational understanding of what this meant, but we're probably more informed just by the cultural understanding of this, this belief system than we are the actual foundations of it. And so we're going through the Sermon of the Mount because um, it's, a, it's a chance to re-examine the foundations of Christianity. If you were with us last week, we talked through kind of set up this, this sermon, which we're going to be in for a while. Uh, we talked through how uh, Jesus didn't come for crowds. He, didn't, he actually regularly ditched the masses and just went away with his disciples. Jesus didn't come for crowds. He came for disciples. We talked about how Matthew shows Jesus to be the true and better Moses, the true and better lawgiver. And then uh, we talked through how um, Jesus said he came to bring the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is the central theme of the gospel of Matthew. It's the central theme of the Sermon on the Mount. And in our section this morning, the Beatitudes, it's the central theme there as well. Um, th this is going to come up a lot. Um, so we need to remember what it is. The kingdom of heaven is where Jesus rules and reigns. It's not some far-off, distant place when we die and we go to, like, that Philadelphia cream cheese commercial in the sky. It's, it's actually something Jesus inaugurated now, and it's begun inside the hearts of those who call Jesus Lord. Because the kingdom of heaven is wherever Jesus rules and reigns. And so, if we're his disciples, he should be ruling and reigning in our heart. Here we go. Kingdom of heaven has begun in our heart. And, and now... Jesus began this work in our heart with this intent that the kingdom of heaven will begin to in us and begin to flow out of us. It would begin in us, it would transform us, and it would flow out of us. So next couple of weeks, this is what we're going to look at. What does it look like for the kingdom of heaven to begin in us? And how do we go live this out, which we'll deal more with next week. Um, but the kingdom of heaven has begun in us, and then we're now to go and 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 live as citizens of the kingdom, spread the truth of this kingdom into every sphere of life. We're to live it out in our relationships. We're to embody the kingdom of God and extend the kingdom of God into the world around us where God has placed us. This morning, what we're going to do, we're going to look at these 12 verses which describe what it looks like to live out the new kingdom that's begun in us. They're the description of the life of salvation. This is, in a sense, Jesus' manifesto of what it means to live new lives in the reality of the kingdom of God that has begun in us. That's a mouthful. Right? Um, if, if you look in your Bibles, if you don't have them open yet, um, you need your Bible open here. Matthew 5, you can turn on a Bible too if that's helpful. But right at the top of Matthew 5, there's probably this little um, subheading. Um, this is called paratext. It was actually added later, so this, this, this topical heading is not in the original manuscripts. But you probably have it above verse 2, something that says the Beatitudes. Anyone else have that? Yeah, a few. Okay, so the Beatitudes. This is what this section has come to be known, but unless you roll in some fairly theologically nerdy circles, this isn't a word you use. You're probably like, what is a Beatitude? 
Um, it, it's, it's actually a translation. I'll, I'll try, to, try to explain this. Um, in our text, you're going to see nine times the word blessed appear. Blessed, it appears nine times. And in in uh, some of the early translation, the Latin translations, this word blessed is beatus. Beatus. So you can see it up on the screen. And um, this is just for fun. Cicero actually coined a new term, which was beatitudis. I'm super nerdy on you right now, but that's where we get the nerm, um, the, the nerm, the name <laughs> beatitude is, is from beat, beatus, beatitudis. And really what it means is uh, to be blessed. But the original text isn't Latin, it's actually Greek. And so where we see blessed nine times in our text, in the original Greek, it's the word makarios. Makarios, um, it, it, means, it means a lot. It means happy. It means blessed, but not in the way that we tend to use it. So when Jesus says, you know, makarios are those who mourn. He's not saying, like, we should go out and, like, I'm so happy that I'm sad. That's weird. You need some counseling. Um, it's also not blessed like we use it. You know, like, it's such a precious gift that this person was slandering me online, that I'm being persecuted and spoken ill. No, this is not really what he's getting at. So it's not the way we use blessed or happy. There's more to it. In the original language, it's actually a salutation. People would use it to say, blessed are you. It's kind of almost a way of saying congratulations. Culturally, it's... It'd be like us walking up, giving someone a high five, a pat on the back, and saying, right on. It's like, fate has smiled on you. God has been favorable. You got a hole in one. Makarios. You're having a baby. Makarios. God's gracious to you. You got a date, finally. Makarios. So this word makarios, um, blessed in the English, it recurs nine times. Nine times. But they're not nine different blessings. Verse 10 and 11, most scholars would say belong together. That's one blessing. And so what we're going to look at is these, what I'm going to argue, eight blessings. Eight blessings that Jesus gives. But before we dive right into them, we need to understand kind of how we're to understand these blessings because a lot of people have fallen off the tracks on this very issue. Um, so I want to talk about what they're not. First, these eight blessings, they're not a list of virtues, but there is virtues on the list. So some translations will word verse three to say, blessed are the poor. But Jesus here, he's not saying it's virtuous to be poor. Everyone should go out and become poor. Or that those who are stuck in a permanent state of mourning are more virtuous than those who have a joyous disposition. It's not what he's saying. Second thing, the Beatitudes are not, they're not a list of commands. So not a list of things that we need to go out and, and do. Should we try to go out and become poor? Well, actually, you know, some in more the Catholic tradition of the faith, um, the monastics, they would do just this. They would go out, they would try to become poor. Many of the people who've been elevated to sainthood died in their 40s of things like malnourishment. Is that what Jesus is telling them to do? No. Don't feel bad if you have financial means. Just give and take me out for lunch. They're, they're not a list of commands. It's, it's not a list of virtues. I want to talk about what they are. 
The Beatitudes, firstly, they are a redefinition of what it means to be blessed. It's Jesus describing what it means to live the life he came to give us. It's, it, it's very much so, it's a countercultural message. Some commentators, they've said um, that we should, we should understand or call these things, rather than Beatitudes today, the norms of the kingdom. So if you have your pen or your pencil, you can go write that in beside the Beatitudes, just the norms of the kingdom. That's how we're to think of them. Secondly, it's... It, this is Jesus describing what it looks like to live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven instead of the kingdom of earth. Last week we talked about, remember, um, Matthew 4, 17, Jesus came and said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is on hand. And now this isn't like how we understand repent where you've got like some televangelist telling you to repent or you're going to burn. This word repent means to change your thinking, change your mind, change the way you're viewing something. So the Beatitudes are Jesus telling us how we're to view things, how we're to change our mind, how we need to adjust our thinking to line up. And, and full disclosure, this message is countercultural. It's against the grain of modern thinking. It's probably the exact opposite of what we grew up being taught. It's antithetical to the popular maxims of our day and age. Really, any day and age that's ever been. It's diametrically opposed to most of what passes off as good advice. It's diversely contrapositive, I busted out the thesaurus for that one, to the so-called wisdom and information that you would glean from any book you would find on the bestsellers list. I, mean, I like to read. I am bookish. I read a lot of uh, self-improvement, business leadership, uh, biographies on famous leaders, and as I've engaged with the, the, the Beatitudes this week, it's just so appalling how different the message of Jesus is from the message of culture. Different from what we hear on our media, different kind of from what we've just been taught growing up. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, but our culture says, blessed are those who are rich in spirit. Blessed are those who know they have what it takes. Blessed are those who pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Blessed are those who positively visualize realities into existence. Theirs is the lion's share. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Culture tells us, blessed are those who are rejoicing. Blessed are those whose plate is full and cup is overflowing. Blessed are those who were approved by others, idolized by others, who live in a state of constant rejoicing, whose Instagram is full of enviable images. Blessed are those who have perfect health, Health, who have no sick family members, who have not lost a child, whose car is not broken down, and who have never missed a mortgage payment or had a check bounce. Theirs is the kingdom of bliss. That's the message of our culture. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. Culture says, blessed are the assertive. Blessed are those who are brazen. Blessed are the go-getters. Blessed are those whose chin is up and back is straight. Blessed are the unyielding, blessed are the bold and the brave, blessed are those who have built their own personal brand and use all of their social media effectively to communicate their message and attract more followers. Theirs is the kingdom of earth. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. The culture says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for more, who have an insatiable appetite that keeps them striving and working to obtain more. Blessed are those who are hungry. Blessed are those who crush it. Blessed are those who make muscles, not excuses, who never take a day off, 
who work 16 hours a day in order to meet their goals. Basically everything you find on the front of a workout tee and, and like toddler clothes, ironically. Um, you get the, like, the, the 18-month-old shirt that says, I'm the boss. No, you're not, anyway. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who climb up the ladder at any cost, who step over others, who will convince others to work for their causes, who enslave others to accomplish their will, who are cutthroat, merciless, who crush every opponent and accomplish every goal. They shall receive everything they desire. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The culture says, blessed are those who follow their heart. Blessed are those who acknowledge and embrace who they are. Blessed are those who reject, reject, reject the dogmatic notion of there being a right way. Blessed are those who have rejected and erased from their memory any notions contrary to their natural desires. Blessed are those who allow no one to tell them that anything they naturally desire might be morally wrong. They shall become a god, and, and, and we worship these figures. We idolize these figures. We put them on the covers of magazines. We call them trailblazers, visionaries, pioneers. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, but culturally, we say, blessed are those who go to war against their opponents, who memorize the 48 laws of power and then enact them out on anyone who stands in their way. Blessed are those who overthrow. Blessed are the nations who have the largest militaries. We call them victors. They'll be heralded as heroes. They will go down in the history books. We'll erect statues in their honor. Jesus said, blessed are the persecuted. And the culture tells us, blessed are the adored, the loved, the admired, those whose way is easy. Theirs is the life that everyone wants. That's the message we're sold. That's what we're told. If I wasn't verbatim there, I was very close. This is the message we're being taught. The Sermon on the Mount is meant to be corrective. It's meant to realign our vision. It's meant to change the way we view the world. So we're going to look at these eight, eight blessings of Jesus, and, and the challenge in that is to realign our thinking, to go, where does this challenge what I've been taught? If you, if you have one of the Sermon on the Mount books, you can flip to the back. In, on page 179, we've got um, in the second appendix of the book, I think something that's really helpful. We've got the blessings, the Beatitudes of Christ here. And then in the back, what we've got is just a place for you to write in that message that you've been taught and you probably believe that's countered by what Jesus said. This is... This is something I want to commend to you this week. I think this is a powerful practice. If we want to be followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, we need to, we need to know where our thinking doesn't align and we need to be challenged. This, this is, that's a practical way to do it, but this is what this sermon is, amount, is, all, is all about. Um, Jesus confronting the accepted, held beliefs that we have. And so... I really have nothing else that I want to do other than just walk line by line through this sermon. It's kind of what we do every week, but I want to walk just one line, one verse at a time, try to explain it so that we can understand it, so that by God's grace, the Holy Spirit could challenge us to see where perhaps we're not living in line with this. So if you have your Bibles open, Matthew 5, verse 3. We begin by reading, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's helpful 
to understand this is that this word poor in the original language is the strongest word available for social poverty. It means living hand to mouth, eking out a living. It's, it's like today's day and age, paycheck to paycheck, but even more so it's like with a stop in at cash plan midweek at some check cashing place. This is the level of poverty they're talking about. Now, again, Jesus is not saying everyone should be poor. Jesus doesn't say blessed are the poor in wallet. He says blessed are the poor in spirit. Lack of material possessions does not equal an awareness of your lack of spiritual wealth. Poor in wallet does not equal poor in spirit. Actually, when I think of this, Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son, if you're familiar with that. Remember, the prodigal son uh, leaves home with his big cash-out inheritance, and he goes and he lives a wild life for a while. And he only comes back to the father after he's run out. And he's actually went beyond running out. When he ran out of money, he still was trying to go. It wasn't until he came to the end of himself and he was like, what am I doing eating this pig muck? That he went, I'm going to turn around and I'm going to go back to my father and, and just ask to be a servant in his house. Likewise, it isn't until we recognize we're bankrupt debtors spiritually that we can truly enter the kingdom. So Dallas Willard, an author I love, he says it's when we come to recognize that we're spiritual zeros. Jesus says, it's at this point, when we've come to the end of ourselves spiritually, that we're actually most blessed. Because until we come to him with our hands empty, we're not able to receive. When we come to him with our hands full of things that we think are pleasing to him, our hands aren't actually available and open to receive what we need. Talked about last week in the sermon. The gate is narrow. That The entrance to the path of life is narrow. And when we come with anything we're too fat to fit through the gate. So the question is, do we recognize this? Really summed up in this statement is, is this truth that if we want to gain a new kingdom, we have to lose an old one first. We need to recognize the poverty that we come with. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Secondly, verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Again, uh, this flies in the face of cultural messaging, and it, and it flies in the face of what most people think Christianity is all about. Many think Christianity is all just about this constant emotional high, this perma experience. We always walk around with a perma grin on our face. So what on earth does Jesus mean when he says that we're blessed when we mourn. Uh, this word, again, it, it communicates, it's really associated with the idea of intense sorrow and grief. And now this doesn't mean Christians are to be perpetually depressed. This isn't um, referring to a mourning that expresses itself outwardly, like in a long face. It's something that expresses itself inwardly in, in a remorse, kind of a grieving, a, a mourning over our sin. As I thought through what this means, how we're to mourn this week, um, kind of my thoughts went three directions. First, I think we're to mourn over the sin in the world. Sin in the world around us. So the blasphemies of, of our nation, 
the effects of sin around us, sickness, death taking people, pandemics, viruses, the loss of loved ones, the loss of a child. This is the effects of sin around us, and we should mourn that. The, the sin that we see in others, the people who are against us, that person who's just so caustic and abrasive, we can see the sin in them. We should mourn over it, not just hate them. We shouldn't hate them. We, we should mourn over the sin in them. And the sin in us. Like More than anything, we should see the sin in ourselves, that lingering sinfulness that we observe in our own heart and mind. If, if we're to be able to think of the Beatitudes as blessings, we need to have our thinking changed. And, and a heart that recognizes its own sinfulness is, is the beginning point of having our hearts and our minds changed. Paul in uh, Romans 7 says this. He says, wretched man that I am. This is him seeing his sinfulness, feeling crushed by it, feeling just like, oh, all I can see is my own sin. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our mourning, our awareness of sin is meant to drive us to the one who can take care of our sin. So, so it's only when we really see this and we grieve over it and we realize our helplessness that we come to Christ and it's at that point where we actually become blessed. This is why he can say, Makarios, when you mourn. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Full disclosure, um, I mean, I am just a student and a fellow apprentice of Jesus. This one is tough for me. I've not arrived on this. When I read this, this challenges my thinking the most because I think the people that I admire, really the characters from the Bible, church history, the biographies I've read, this is not how I view them. I like, you know, the bold men that take the hill, who stare down enemies, who carried the gospel into pagan nations and fought off arrows. So hundreds of thousands come to faith and died a brave martyr's death. This is what I pray for my own life. This is what I want God to do. But I, it's easy to forget. And as I contemplated this week, like, why doesn't this match up, Jesus? I was reminded that none of these men started out bold and brave and brazen. They were meek. Think of Gideon. Story of Gideon. God comes to him and he's hiding in a wine press. He's, a, he's hiding like a coward. God comes to him, the angel of the Lord, and says, you're a mighty warrior, which is, is you can laugh at it. That's a joke. You're not a mighty warrior, you're a coward. But God emboldens him. He goes out and he tops over the idols in his town. And then he goes out and with 300 men and the Holy Spirit empowering them, takes down nations. Moses goes and stands in front of the leader of Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world at the time. He looks like a dude, except for, I mean, when you read Numbers 12, it says the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Remember, God went to Moses. It was God who went to Moses. Moses didn't come to God and like, I got this plan, okay? We're gonna go rescue your people. You should empower me for it. No, God came to Moses and Moses said no. 
And it was through his stammering tongue and knocking knees that God actually empowered him and did the mighty miracle. Culture tells us fortune favors the bold and brave. Jesus tells us that God favors the meek. Those who are more in touch with their weakness than their strength. Those who are more aware of what they lack than what they possess. Next. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This word righteousness here is a big word. Um, means integrity, virtue, purity of life. Um, but really at its core, what it means is appro- an approval with God. Right with God and rightness with God. Approval with God comes only after we've recognized our poverty of spirit. Only after we've mourned over our sinfulness. It's when we meekly come before him with nothing in our hands Longing for righteousness we could never earn ourselves, that our hands are empty enough to receive what only he can give. Approval with God. So when he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he's saying, blessed are those who recognize they're poor, they have nothing to offer, they have no right to come before the throne and get anything, but blessed are you because it's you that shall be satisfied. The whole point of these... um, first four beatitudes is really to show us the heart that longs for righteousness before God will be satisfied. But this is, again, it flies in the face of culture. This is not how you would go in for a job. You wouldn't go into a job and be like, uh, sit down in front of the hiring agent and say, actually, I have no resume. And when I think about how I have no resume, it makes me mourn and sometimes I cry. You're not going to get the job. But this is... (laughs) This is the countercultural message of Christ. And it's actually at this point here that, that the Beatitudes shift. As I've committed them to memory, I, I started to notice this shift, and then as you dive into the original language, it becomes a lot more apparent. So we, we've now just dealt with four blessings. We'll go into four more, so we're at the middle. But in Greek, there's actually 36 Greek words that we've just read, and we're going to read 36 more. Also, to announce this pronounced sort of like fulcrum point or middle, each of the four blessings that preceded, the ones we've just read, all began with the same Greek letter. Now some variance comes. So to the original audience, they're noticing there's a shift here. Something's changing. And so as we read on now, um, let's let's pay attention. This this is, if there's going to be any point in here where there might be virtues on the list, it's going to be the next three. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, mercy, of course, it's an attribute of God. Exodus 34 says, the Lord is merciful and gracious. Psalm 145, verse 8, the Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. Jesus, God is merciful and Jesus is the picture of God's mercy. He came and took the consequences for our sin. He stood on the scale for us, doing what we couldn't do, perfectly living the life, the perfect life and the law that God required, taking the consequences that we deserved for not fulfilling it. Took it on himself. Now the invitation of Christ is simply get off of the scale, let Jesus stand on it for you. Jesus is merciful. And so as his disciples, people who are becoming like him, were his apprentices, we're to be merciful. Micah 6.8 says this, what does the Lord require of you? 
to act justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. They will receive mercy. See, a little later on in Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer, um, Jesus says, forgive us our trespasses in the same way we forgive those who've trespassed against us. There's a correlation between how much mercy do you want? We'll go and show that much then. Psalm 24, verse 3, we read, who shall, um, pardon me, I'm jumping ahead of myself here, um, into the, the next beatitude. So we're to show mercy. The next is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see, see God. Now we can go to Psalm 24, which says, who may ascend the hill of the Lord, and who can stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. So this term, purity of heart, Big term, we could probably, like, again, all of these Beatitudes we could spend a week in. It's probably, like, almost criminal that we're doing them in a week, but we want to get done this series before next Christmas, so we're, um, there's some liberties we're going to take and would encourage you to go read midweek, but this term, um, um, pure in heart, I like how Soren Kierkegaard worded it. He said, purity in heart is to will one thing. Purity in heart is to will one thing. So it's to have a single-hearted devotion, a singular goal. For it means for our heart to be increasingly set on the kingdom alone and to every day grow more and more and more and more dissatisfied with the kingdom of here and now. That's purity in heart. So as you read this, the question that we should be confronted with is, you know, are we working wholeheartedly to seek to seek the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of earth? Are we chasing the kingdom of the world or are we chasing the kingdom of heaven? Verse 8, blessed are the peace, verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Again, this confronts our modern notions. We, we, we don't really like or favor this attitude, the peacemakers. We like a rebel. We like someone who sticks it to the man. We like us some Joe Rogan. The Jews didn't favor this either. They didn't, they didn't like the peacemaker. They were cowards. They wanted a war maker. This is why when Jesus died, you'll remember, they chanted, give us Barabbas. Barabbas was an insurrectionist that was leading a revolt against Rome and and. Tens of thousands of people rallied behind him before Rome put him in prison. When they asked, who do you want, Jesus or Barabbas? They say, give us Barabbas. We want a war maker. We don't want a peacemaker. Kill the peacemaker. But making peace is what Jesus did. Ephesians 2, it says this. Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people in his own body, he took on the cross, broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this and ended the system of law with its commandments and regulations, and he made peace. Jesus is a peacemaker. And so Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. If we're sons of God, we're to take up the family business, which is making peace. So the question confronted with in this is are we 
peacemakers? What does it mean to be a peacemaker? Do we make peace or are we poop disturbers? Do our actions unite people or divide people? Do they start war or end it? Do they start fires or do they put them out? Ephesians 4.3, we're commanded to make every effort to keep the unity of, spirit, uh, uh, unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This is what Jesus says it means to be his follower. This is what it looks like to live as the citizens of kingdom while finishing our life out on this, the kingdom of earth. If we're going to be dis disciples and truly live this out, we need to take time to examine our hearts and see where we might be beat, um, marching to the beat of a different drum, where we might be believing the maxims and, and, and the mantras of a different kingdom. If we want to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven, I need to give us a disclosure, uh, a warning, is that the, the world, the kingdom of earth, does not receive well those who have chosen to live for a different kingdom. The world doesn't receive well those who are living for a different world. Which is why Jesus says this, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus doesn't say blessed is everyone who's persecuted. Like, blessed are the persecuted. He said persecuted for righteousness' sake. The next verse, he would say, blessed are you when others um, hate you, revile you, utter all sorts of evil against you on my account. So just because you're persecuted and people throw rocks at you doesn't make you righteous. You might be an idiot. If we're going to inherit the kingdom of heaven, um, we need to take a look and go, which do I want? We need to let go of one in order to get the other, and that's going to come at a cost. That comes at a cost. In order to enter the kingdom of heaven, uh, we need to give up our citizenship in the world. We need to stop living for one and we need to live for the other. We need to stop investing in one and we need to invest in the other. We need to switch allegiance from one to the other. This is what Jesus calls us to do. It's to burn our old passport. You ever want to truly become a citizen of just one country? <laughs> just give up your, your other passport. That's the call. We're to become kind of like spiritual Ed Snowdens. Where we, we, we actually act in opposition to our old kingdom. Ephesians 5 says we're to have nothing to do with the fruitless works of darkness, but rather we're to expose them. We're to work against the, the values of the old country. We're to bring the countries of our new are the values of our new country to bear in the one where we find ourselves living. We're like foreign ambassadors for the kingdom of God. The values of the new kingdom are to well up in us and work through us and transform the world around us. And as we do this, we're going to encounter opposition. We'll be mocked, we'll be ridiculed for following Christ. In Canada, right now, we can go to jail for standing on some of the truths that the scriptures teaches. So I might need you to bail me out in a couple weeks here. As we work through this sermon, uh, we'll start a GoFundMe. Um, First Peter says this, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you 
as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The first 12 verses here in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, as we've begun this study, they describe the way of the kingdom of heaven. It comes by way of poverty and mourning. It comes by way of hunger and thirsting. It has an immediate cost, but it offers an eternal reward. And notice here, um, there, there is a cost, but there is a reward. He says, makarios, makarios, over and over. And the whole Beatitudes are bookended by this promise. You will inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's the promise when we live for this kingdom. Now, Luke 6, if you're interested in studying, um, it's kind of Luke's shortened version of this, like a recanting of everything that Jesus taught. When you go there, it's interesting to juxtapose because it also gives some warning. Luke says, Woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the prophets. The kingdom of heaven, it has an immediate cost and an eternal payoff. The kingdom of earth has an immediate payoff but an eternal cost. And so we need to make a decision around where do we want to be citizens? Do we want all people to speak well of us? Where do we want our reward? Do we want to be loved and liked by everyone? Do we want those who don't follow the way of Jesus to love us and sing our praises? Do we want those who live their lives in opposition to God and his law to love everything about us? If we're, just, if, if, if we're his disciples, this is not what Jesus said would be the case. If everyone loves us, we might have two feet into the kingdom of earth and not even a toe into the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, verse 11, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The way into the kingdom of heaven is narrow. The comforts are few. Persecution and loneliness is not uncommon, but the reward is worth it because Jesus is the reward. The kingdom is the reward. And so, Praxis, I need to ask us, which kingdom do we want? Which kingdom do you want? I'd encourage you, spend some time in that appendix. Spend some time in, in prayer, in meditation this week, and examining, then, which marching orders am I obeying? A couple questions as we close here. Which kingdom do our beliefs and attitudes best align with? Secondly, how do our values and actions need to be realigned in order to match up with the kingdom that Jesus describes? And, and I'd encourage you, take some time, read through this. It only takes a couple of minutes. 
Uh, we're going to have some information up on our, on our social media this week on how you can begin to memorize scripture. I think this, is, this has been one of the most life-giving practices for me. And if I could encourage you to try something this week, try to memorize some of this. This is the core kind of backbone of what Jesus taught us as disciples. Let's put it in our mind. If you're very familiar with this, I'd encourage you, go, go read through Luke. Um, go to Exodus 20. Take a look at the Sermon on the Mount. Compare and contrast these two. Again, Matthew's showing us Jesus to be the true and better lawgiver. Read Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, and the, and the Beatitudes, and, and, and allow the Spirit to confront you. If we want to be disciples of Jesus, we need to examine our hearts, our held beliefs, and our actions and, and ensure that how we're living and what we're believing lines up with what Jesus taught us.